Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Reese Adams and Scott Hawthorne were highly talented athletes in cricket and football, respectively. Reese had a successful career playing first 11 cricket for the Hawthorne and Paran Cricket Clubs in the Victorian Premier Cricket Competition, culminating in the 2012-13 season where Reese took 48 wickets at an average of 14 and earned a spot in the Victorian Premier Cricket Team of the Year. Scott was a gifted junior footballer who won multiple awards in the Eastern Football League before joining the pathway to being drafted into the AFL by playing football for the Oakley Chargers and Victorian Metro squads. As well as early careers in elite sport, Reese and Scott also have in common an incredible five complete anterior cruciate ligament tears each. These injuries significantly affected their sporting aspirations and forced them both into premature sporting retirement. Nowadays, they have both successfully transitioned into the next phases of their lives, with Reese working as a physical education teacher and head of house at Carey Baptist Grammar School, while Scott is an expert in Melbourne commercial real estate and works as a senior negotiator in Melbourne city sales and development sites for the CBRE group. Today, I'll be talking to Reese and Scott about the athlete's perspective of tearing an ACL. Welcome to the Orthopod, guys. Thanks, Liam. Glad to be here. Reese. As a fast bowler, you put somewhere between 8 to 10 times your body weight through your landing leg when you bowl the ball, but it wasn't always fast bowling that caused your injuries. Tell me about your history of ACL tears. Well, the first one was really, I guess interesting is the word. So it was a Shepherd and pre-season trip with Paran, so having the same bowling action for 16, 17 years. It was back into the training session, the sun was going down, and I like to think the fact that I was bowling too fast, they asked me to slot down, but clearly that wasn't the case. So I started to bowl some spin, and I like to think that I could take off the actions of the well-known cricketers, and Tim, Tim May, Peter Taylor, Shane Warne, I could do their actions quite well. And it was one delivery of Peter Taylor, so he was uh, an Australian cricketer back in the 80s, and he had this massive jump before the crease before he got into his off-spin. And imitating that action, and as I jumped up, I felt something and I didn't quite know what it was and as I landed I collapsed looked at the non-striker which was a good friend of mine and I accused him for hitting me with his cricket bat so I think at the time I didn't quite know the extent of what had happened but yeah it was just bowling off spin at a training session innocuous no one had made contact I didn't land awkwardly it was during the takeoff and that was the first ACL and that was my first experience of it. After that period of 12 to 13 months uh, rehab, I was back bowling at training. Everything was okay. We went to Tasmania for a pre-season trip. And then how old were you at the time? 30, 29 or 30. Pretty old now. It's hard to think back those yeah. 70 years. Um, and opened the bowling in a one-day game at Kingsborough in Tasmania. Managed to bowl the spell of six overs. Fielded for the rest of the innings and was fine. Came back to finish the last two overs of the game. Third ball in. Ran in, action was as normal, and landed on my back leg that slipped underneath me and fell down like a sack of potatoes and knew straight away. And then the third was another 15 months where I'd changed clubs. I'd gone from Paran to Richmond to transition into coaching. And same thing, gathered 15 months, bowling at training, fielding, batting without an issue with, with good positive uh, feedback from physio and the surgeon that all was good. 
Playing a T20 game, bowled two overs, fielded in between, came back for my third over and, and back leg had slipped over. So they were the three on my right leg and I had two previous tears when I was 18, so 18 years prior, because um, I'm 36 now, which happened uh, at a, a school. I was in year 12 playing soccer. Um, and again, I'd like to say it's a great story of me kicking the hat-trick and you know, having the, the, the blast-out game, but it was me collecting a ball over a fence and going to kick it back to, the, to my mates and just landed awkwardly, um, tore MCL, part ACL, part PCL, chipped a little bit off um, uh, the tibia and had a full reconstruction then. And the same thing happened about 12 months after on the same leg. Again, a soccer... <laughs> Seems it's uh, comical going through it again, but it's it was a soccer training session at Hawthorne, going up for a header, and as I took off my left knee, dislocated and tore pretty much the same ligaments at the same That's time. That's brutal. So three on my right leg bowling, which was my back leg, and then, well, previous to that was the two on my left leg. And Scotty, you've had five as well. So Reese has described what we call non-contact ACL tears, which yeah. is where the athlete pivots or decelerates suddenly or, in Reese's case, playing soccer, landing from a, a jump. <laughs> imitating a, an off-spinner from yeah. the 80s. Yeah, or imitating <laughs> off-spinners. Um, but there's also uh, contact-related injuries where another player, yes. say in the footy or in the NFL, you might see it a fair bit where the player falls across someone's knee. What are some of the ways you've torn your ACL? I've always been injury prone. So hamstrings, roll my ankles, you know, I crack, crack my knuckle playing football. I've always been injured. So it wasn't a surprise that I've had so many ACL tears. That's the first thing. In terms of the first time I tore my ACL, I was 17, playing football, charging the forward line, and it was just a case of my left leg was planted Someone came from my left side, fell across my knee trying to uh, put a smother on, and I was trying to kick the ball. And I had no idea what happened. I had torn my lateral ligament probably about four years prior when I was uh, you know, under 13s, under 14s. So I was hoping it was that. Just sitting on the boundary line, didn't really know what was going on. My knee started to really swell up. It was painful. It had to be carried off straight away. And yeah, realized that uh, I tore my ACL. Uh, the second time, um, two years later, I was playing under 19s. And I had picked up the ball it was in the second quarter. I was playing at Donvale at the time. Went to snap a goal, kicked it through on my left, and my left leg was still in the air. It was dangling. And I had an instance where I had one person come from one side um, and make contact with my quad, and the other person came from my right side and hit my ankle. So those two forces went one way, and my knee just... I heard a pop. I felt it, and it was shocking. And I, I knew straight away. You know that sound. You know that feeling. And you know, all those emotions started to come back. So I just went down. I couldn't get back up. I just started crying straight away. Uh, I had to be stretched off. It was just a shocking, shocking feeling. So those are the two uh, contact injuries. The third time, uh, it was about two years later, I marked the ball and literally just landing from a mark, as innocuous as it can be on the... Um, the wing at, uh, I think it was playing Montrose um, in the Eastern Football League. Just in front of the grandstand, took a really good pack mark, landed, and straight away, you just heard that pop. My left leg hit the ground first, hyperextended, and I just knew. And it was the first kick I had in the game, so I'm like, I, I know I've torn my ACL, but I've got to have this kick. <laughs> I haven't kicked a ball for, you know, 12 months. I've got, it was my first game back, that's right. It was the first game in preseason. And, yeah, it was, it was a shocking feeling. The fourth time... 
I was alone in training and I had this this thing, right? So, you know, you, you can't play footy anymore. You've done three, trying to do other things. I really want to improve my vertical leap. So I was going through this this thing of watching YouTube videos and doing these exercises. And by this time, my knee well and truly healed. You know, I was in my mid-20s. I had my career going and this is just something I was doing on the side so I could play basketball with my mates and try and dunk. That was my thing. And I was doing these exercises to try and jump and leap and really extend my hips and it was just a case of landing same thing my knee planted caved inwards so my left knee caved in heard the pop and i was just going oh you're kidding just laid down the ground and just couldn't believe it terrible and then the fifth time was probably two years later i was playing pickup basketball at beverly hills primary school with my cousin and uh just some random guys in the court and i tried doing some fadeaway thinking that I was awesome at basketball and landed, heard a pop. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is terrible. And I, what am I doing with my life? And I just walked off and uh, put an ice back on. And that was around Christmas in 2017. So two, two contact and three very innocuous non-contact. And you described what in medical school they teach us, which is patients sometimes hear a pop when they tear their ACL. Uh, a few hours after the injury, the knee will swell up and it'll feel unstable or wobbly like you can't hold your body weight is that what it was like for you guys absolutely that pop the first time i didn't hear a pop i didn't feel anything i didn't know what was going on the second time and you know the subsequent times thereafter every time you, you heard it you felt it and it was that initial feeling of not being able to put weight on the knee and it was a terrible feeling because your heart your heart sinks you know what you're in for but at the same time you're kind of hoping that's something else. You're hoping it's a lateral, it's a medial ligament, or you, you can get away with it. But yeah, you, you can always tell. I don't remember the sound. So certainly with that, I'm thinking back to when I, I, I was bowling off spinner, and I, I felt a, a big hit on my knee. I didn't hear anything. That's why I turned to my mate to think that he hit me with a cricket bat, just jokingly. The second time when I was in Tasmania and bowling, Again, I, I slipped over and I got up thinking, well, it's embarrassing, but I'm, I'm okay. Limping back to the top of my mark, ready to bowl again and, and just feeling unstable and not confident. And I think by the third time, when I, when I slipped over in the game, again, I don't remember hearing the pop. I might have, and I probably just pushed it out of my mind. Yeah. But Interesting. I, I knew, because I, I finished the over. Because at the time in that game against, we were playing Camberwell, uh, Victorian Premier League and I was bowling against an ex-teammate of mine and I wanted to get him out and I remember bowling out the over and probably not to any you know high intensity or a similar speed fielded a ball and then realised that I wasn't able to move and I couldn't go laterally I couldn't run forward with any great velocity and, and probably knew then that it was gone but yeah I, I don't have the same recollection as Scotty that, that there was a pop or a loud noise so okay. a little bit different in my circumstance yeah and what about pain like how bad was the pain say out of 10 uh bearable yeah. bearable i reckon that after that first one in shepparton i iced it my knee was swelling and it was sore but i thought i'll be right by the next day that was the worst part you fall into this sense of you know, this false sense of security thinking it's not that bad yeah i'll be okay but it's that lack of support that feeling your knee can just collapse and it might just give out yeah so it's a feeling that like you can't sort of unstable wobbly can't sort of hold yourself up that that sort of feeling the the two the two injuries in my left knee when i was playing the soccer there was more damage 
around. So there yeah. were other ligaments and there were other structures that were damaged. They were more painful than my right knee, which was just the ACL. There was just more swelling, but less pain. And, and like Scotty was saying, like the pain, it's almost like knowing, like particularly the second, third, fourth and fifth times that you've done it for both of you, it hurt, but what hurt more was knowing that you're going to have to go through the rehab and the surgery and everything. Massively. That's what took the biggest toll. The second, third, fourth time round, knowing that you know, what you're in for and expecting all those things through surgery and, and mm. what comes with that, that was the worst. That was mm. the hardest to comprehend for me. And as you both know, if you tear the ACL, you can't just repair it. You, you actually have to reconstruct it using a graft from the patella or the hamstring or quadriceps tendon, which we call an autograft. Or you sometimes use a tendon from a deceased donor known as an allograft. And I dare not mention the Lars procedure. Scott, tell me about your experience. You've had multiple knee surgeries. You know, what was it like when you had your first one compared with your most recent one? You know, how did it change over the time? Yeah, okay. So the first time it was, it wasn't a big deal. I wasn't too faced by it. I just knew that, you know, whatever, I can get through it. You know, I've got the best surgeon and I've got all these things going for me. It'll be 12 months. I'll be back playing football and, and running in nine months. That's all fine. But the second, third, fourth, um, when I had the, the other surgeries, it was more the pain of knowing what that involves. So the horrible feeling of waking up from surgery, it's a shocking feeling. You look down, your calf is... It's wasted away, your quads wasted away, your knees swelled up. Uh, it's, it's quite confronting seeing that, knowing that the next 10 days to two weeks, I'm going to be in bed, you know, sitting down on the floor, trying to, you know, do those heel drags with a sock on the floorboards, <laughs> trying to get some everything going. Yeah. Lying on, you know, lying belly down on a bed with your knee hanging down, trying to get some, some movement in your knee. It's a horrible feeling. So it was more the pain of knowing what's to come as opposed to, another 12 months of surgery. It was more the initial stages of surgery, but then you, you tie in all these other things, like you know you're missing out on playing football, the social side of things, all those, the, the intangibles that come with sport. It's not just going out there on Saturday and playing, it's it's a social thing, it's twice a week training, it's it's the sense of purpose. You know, All through high school, it was, I was a footballer, I was an athlete, I wanted to play AFL, all these aspirations you have, and that's tied up in your sense of self-worth, your identity, and then when that's taken away, it's quite confronting. So... Yeah, the second, third and fourth surgeries, um, there was a sense of inevitability where that's not going to happen. It's quite confronting and you have to push on and deal with it. And how about you, Rhys? Certainly the difference between when I was 18 and then my, my last one was when I was 31 was the confidence of the surgeon on how quick to get you out of bed. So that first one at 18, you know, I was in a, in a quite a long, quite a big brace and it was slow. So it was, might have been two or three days after Let's get up. Let's get you going up and down some stairs. Let's practice using the crutches. By that last one, when I was 31, the surgeon was looking at me the next day saying, why aren't you out of bed moving? And his confidence to get me up and going was remarkably different. So whether that's a changing technique or their, their confidence in what the surgery was, that, that was noticeable. But a bit like what Scott said, the, the second and third time is of I had a full-time job. I had a family. And knowing that I was about to go into 12 to 15 months of constant rehab, constant pain, it, it's daunting. Whereas at 18 and 19, it's pretty carefree. Mm. So knowing that I can dedicate two hours a day for rehab was comfortable. Yeah, I can deal with that. Absolutely. But knowing that there's now cost involved, time off work, and then family commitments mm. becomes really difficult. 
Yes, as you sort of alluded to there, you were both young once. And in doing my research for the podcast, I found a few interesting quotes regarding your younger days as athletes. So beginning with you, Reese, in an interview with your coach at the time, at per- or would have been both at Hawthorne and Peran, Waldo, Andrew Walton, he said, Reese was prone to injury and wasn't the hardest worker. And Scott, on your player profile for the Oakley Chargers, where you were asked if you could take one thing to a deserted island, what would it be? Your answer was Jessica Alba. (laughs) Now, as young blokes, how seriously do you think you took your first ACL tear? I mean, firstly, it's a a nice reminder that whatever you say, especially on social media, is there forever. Shocking. (laughs) Absolutely shocking. I actually do remember having a chat to Waldo after that, and we've become good friends and I absolutely agree that I wasn't working hard enough. And I've done a lot of career coaching probably the last eight to ten years, and and I'll talk about this later on, but the empathy that I've developed for injured players is considerable. And at the time, I, I wasn't challenged at all. And Waldo was new to coaching, and, and he and I had spoken about his role that he did challenge me, and I needed that, and I needed someone to push me because I was taking rehab for granted. My main focus was to play cricket, absolutely, but to you know get back to the nightclub as quick as I can and, and to to live a life on the beach and what a 19, 20-year-old was meant to do. Mm. At the time, and, and looking back, it's one regret that I probably did was not rehab as well as I could because I've still got lingering tracking issues in my left knee. Didn't stop me from playing because 10 years later, I was made that team of the year and, and had my best cricket season. Um and with the three that happened when I was 30, I was more mature about it. I was diligent. I did everything well. And I still had multiple ACL surgeries. So I sit back and, yeah, I regret the initial rehab. But at the same time, I did everything possible when I was 30 and it still happened. When I was 17, did my first one. And then, you know, my early 20s, when I did the second lot of rehab, it was intense. It was deliberate. There was a process. I, I was going to see a physio, you know, once every... X amount of weeks, I'd do every exercise to the T. There was nothing compromised. So I could look myself you know, in the eye and just know I'm doing everything I can. This is all I care about. I was you know, doing, going through year 12, whatever. I couldn't care less. All I cared about was rehabbing my knee, getting back to playing football, running, smashing the beat test, you know, this amazing life of being in football. That's all I cared about. And there is the same thing with the second one. I was going through uni, plenty of spare time, always at the gym, uh, always at home, just doing certain exercises to strengthen my knee. That's were these the exercises that you thought were appropriate or that physios or the surgeon had given you? No, always prescribed by physio. Uh, and it wasn't you know, a backyard operation or an online physio. It was you know, the best of the best. You, you can't... In, in Victoria, you couldn't get any better. Um, and I put my heart and soul into the rehab. And when I tore it for the third time, that's when the intensity started to drop away. I still, I still did the work. Uh, you still put the put the effort in, you put the time in, but it wasn't the level of dedication that it was early stages. So I'd like to think it was still the average or you know the norm for a quote unquote you know, just average bloke. But certainly the first two, there was a lot of intensity and there was a lot of purpose behind it. But it certainly tapered off towards the end when you don't have that goal of trying to make it to a certain standard of sport. It's really just doing it because you want to be able to run or have um, a sense of normality in your life. Mm. So the the period after ACL surgery sounds really quite physically and from both of you emotionally challenging mm. and it sounds like it also requires commitment to a pretty rigorous rehabilitation program. 
you know, let's delve more into that. And, and I'd like to know what was the rehab process like for you guys? You know, what specifically did you sort of do? What were some of the exercises that say maybe you liked doing versus you didn't like doing? And what advice would you give to someone who's going through rehab for an ACL tear for the first time? So I've got advice and I'll probably go back to my most recent three. They're the most fresh in my memory. I got advice from a friend of mine who had just gone through an ACL recovery and told me about a cryo cuff. So it was essentially an esky that you would fill with water and ice. It would be linked by a hose to a, a an inflatable brace that would be constantly cold wrapped around your knee. And at the time he gave it to me and it, it literally looked like an esky you would take to the beach. But to be able to have constant cold compress, you know, to help with inflammation and just with pain, it was really important. Then essentially for that first week, and I'm sure Scott can remember, that the first time you roll out of bed and you're being handheld by either a physio or your partner or whoever's there with you, you're so tentative to put your foot on the ground. You don't think you could do it. You think your leg's about to snap. Mm. You're going through so many concerns. Did the surgeon do it right? You know, they draw a big texture mark on your leg with an arrow, making sure that the, you know, the shave is happening and the right leg's been done. And you have doubts that the surgery actually went according to plan. And as soon as you take a shuffle to the toilet and you get there and you lean against the shower rail, you start to build a little bit of confidence. And that's the way I saw it. It was every step, every day, every moment was a step towards me being fully recovered. I hated the simple physio exercises. So the, the, the quarter squat, they call it with me, there was the million dollar bill where you had to imagine you had a million dollar note squeezed between your bum cheeks and you had to do a quarter squat. I hated it. I didn't feel anything in my quads. I didn't feel like it was doing anything. I was more into and, and probably more of the exercise I could feel. And maybe that was not the right thing because it probably brought about a bit of pain. But as Scott mentioned before, lying on your stomach with your leg dangling over the edge of the bed and letting gravity try to break through some scar tissue and try to increase range of motion. I liked that. I liked it because I felt something happening in my knee and mm. might have swelled my knee more than what the others did, but I felt like I was making more progress. So the day-to-day stuff was really mundane, really boring, and I found that hard. Um, and then by that six to seven months when you're able to jog for 100 metres and, and go for a little bit longer, that's when I started to really enjoy rehab. Yeah, I started to see purpose in it. I liked the challenge of it. I liked, funny enough, being seeing my knee swell up and seeing that that was progress that I could then reduce, then go again, go a little bit harder. And then over time, you start to get confidence to jump over a cone, laterally run forward, run backwards at someone's call. And then, you again, that's another big step forward. Would you change anything in the way you did it, say, the, you know, the first couple of times when you were younger? Uh, no, I don't think so. Don't think so, because those ones that happened when I was 18, 19, I think I had a pretty good existence when I was 18, 19. <laughs> so potentially I don't get those experiences if I'm spending it in the gym. And as I found out, when I got to 30, I was still playing good cricket and there was no impact on that mm-hmm. those things. The, the most recent ones that actually stopped me from playing cricket when I had to give uh, give cricket away, I don't have any regrets on the, the recovery I did because I, I was impacted by a full-time job having a, a two-year-old daughter that required me to be able to get up and get down and I couldn't just ice it for 24 hours a day. 
So yeah, no regrets. And Scotty, I know you you had the cryo cuff as well. I remember seeing that when we were younger and thinking, what is this thing? And yeah. you know, tell us about what you know. You've, you've used it too. What was the cryo cuff like? Non-negotiable. The- yeah, absolute non-negotiable in your rehab. I remember the fourth, the third or fourth time I tore it. I thought, yeah, I'll just wheel out the cryo cuff. But at that point, I had connected it and disconnected it from. So, so it's the esky. There's a hose attached to the esky. And then that goes to something that wraps around your knee, fills up with water, and provides cooling. The, the hose that connects to that structure that goes around your knee, that had worn out. Because the amount of times I'd plugged it and unplugged it. So I had to buy a new one. And you know, for a week or two, I didn't have a cryo cuff. One thing that came to mind when, when Reese was answering that question is just the, the importance of um, the staff that are um, assisting you. So whether that's the nurses, you know, fantastic, all, all the time, I always have fantastic nurses, but also the confidence the surgeon, uh, the importance the surgeon plays. Every morning or you know, waking up after surgery, having the, the surgeon come in, tell you everything was okay, give that reassurance, even though it was only for about two minutes each time, the, the reassurance that gives you just to settle you down, make sure you know everything's okay, makes a world of difference. It might sound like nothing, but it has a huge impact. And every time, there's only coming back to me now, every time it happened, I thought, oh, how good is this? Yeah, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get on track. I'm going to absolutely smash this. If you were, say, elite athletes, um, the two athletes that come to mind are Dan Menzel and Alex Johnson. They've both had just as many ACLs as you guys. You've both come across them. Scotty, you played footy with Alex when you were younger at, at Oakley. Do you think things would have been different if you were in elite athlete pathway? And I had more... Attention. Say, say you were you were you'd been drafted to the Lions. You're oh, up in yeah, Brisbane great question, and you tore your ACL. Do you think it'd be different? Do you think you'd be more inclined to work harder because you're being paid, or because you've got physios there watching every move you do? Great question. The answer is yes. It would have been a different situation because whilst I can push myself so far, reality is, as a 17 year old and subsequently you know, 19 or 20 year old, there are limits to that. And whilst I know I gave a hell of a lot and I couldn't have done much more. When you have someone there guiding you every single step of the way, every rehab session is watched, recorded, analysed, every rep is uh, critiqued, big difference. So what that materialises to, what the outcome of that is, who knows? It's hard to quantify, but I'm certain there would be some kind of difference between your average punter, like you and I, and someone that's a professional athlete with 24-hour supervision by a professional. And there's an extrinsic motivator there. To get back and to play for your job would be the one carrot sitting out in front of that person to, to do the 6am session or the 2-hour session or, or to advance their goal is because that is their job. By the time I was 30, 31, I, I just wanted to get back to my own job, which was not to play cricket. I wasn't getting paid. I, I paid to play. And so I, I did miss physio sessions because my private health wasn't going to cover the next five or six. And so to be out of pocket $100, $125 for a physio session, I thought that I knew enough about it that I could go to the gym. And a bit like Scott, I could probably push myself, but not as far as I possibly could go physically. And then there are days because I was working, you know, big days at a school and then had a family that I missed a gym session. Someone like a Dan Menzel, if you, you get a chance to see his documentary, I mean, he had access to the best technology, the best supporting people in his life. I mean, he still had multiple injuries, no different than what we had. But yeah, he did have access to having someone behind him, someone making him accountable with that extrinsic motivator to get back for mm. that job. 
I think that's one big difference between Scott and I and those who get paid to play. You mentioned the financial impact that it had on you. I mean, both of you, again, you're not elite athletes. You don't have the backing of, of a footy club or a, or a cricket organisation to fund this sort of stuff, not just surgery, but physiotherapy, even little things like your medication or going to the GP. What, you know, for you, what was the financial burden like? I mean, private health certainly does help. And so having access to a very good surgeon to be able to, to not stress about the finance of it was helpful but still out of pocket I don't know what the end cost was um, I'd hate to think but it's a conversation that my wife and I had about my very final surgery because I went about two years after the last ACL tear before having the surgery thinking that I could probably live a, a good life and a normal life without having that surgery and it's the conversation can we afford it is it money well spent is it a good investment because yeah you have to think about not just the hospital fees the anaesthetist fees and the surgeon it's Okay, well, it might be 12 months of regular physio. It's, as you say, the medication. Do I need a knee brace that could be, you know, five to $800 in case I want to get back being physical? So it's not a flippant decision that I can make because we're trying to pay a mortgage. We both work. We've got family, thinking of schools. Um, And so when it comes to it and you're starting to work through, should I go to that physio session next week? Do I have the money to be able to do it? And, And thankfully, I was able to say yes most of the time. And, you know, having insurance meant you were both, but in both cases, you were able to access Professor Julian Feller, one of the world's most renowned orthopaedic surgeons when it comes to ACL reconstructions. And in a recent journal article, Professor Feller wrote that while an ACL injury does not mean the end of an athlete's sporting career, it presents a significant challenge in terms of returning to pre-injury levels of form. And something that's really important for people to understand who haven't torn their ACL or had a major injury is what's the what's it like going from you've torn your ACL, you've done 12 months of rehab, you've had an operation, all this sort of stuff, and then, you know, Reese, in your case, you've got the new ball in your hand at training, presumably you're running into bowl or you're just standing at the top of your mark and you're thinking, is my ACL going to hold up to this? You know, what was that like the first time you went back to, to cricket after tearing your ACL? It was a really good build-up that I had. So part of the physio's plan was to bowl off two steps and then walk to five steps and then build up to 10 steps and then build up to 15 steps and and then to do three weeks of running through the crease without actually jumping and bowling. So I guess that initial first bowl at 100% of training, I, I don't remember it being a big hurdle. I had big expectations, especially after the first ACL, that the big, what you said before, Scott, that I'll be back. I'll be fine. I'll be good. But what I didn't realise at the time, there's expectations of your teammates. So, you know, we are playing some good cricket. We won a, a one-day flag and a T20 flag. Uh, people have said before we had one of the best Paran sides going around. They won the flag this year, thankfully. Uh, but there's a bit of expectations that you will be back the way you were 12 months ago. So that carries a bit of a burden as well. But you're really tentative. You're very nervous leading into that training session you're nervous because people are watching to see whether you would be back at where you were 12 months ago. I don't know what it's like from a footy perspective, but with cricket, it's very wait for the bowler. They release the ball, then the game starts. So, yeah, nothing happens until I was able to run in and release the ball at training and in the game. So it's quite a, a nerve-wracking moment that when you get through one, and then it gets a little bit easier. And then from there, it's just a matter of building up to then trying to get back into the game scenario. How about you, Scott? So after my first ACL, I never—I was able to get to the same level of fitness. So you know, a B test, that was all elite. That was fine. That was great. 
but it was confronting when I realised I'd lost that initial burst of speed, that quickness off the mark. It just wasn't there, and it was so strange because you'd go to do it, and it just wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't react. And funnily enough, you mentioned Alex Johnson before. I was trying to guard him at fullback, and this is a moment I've spoken about with my dad a couple of times. It was just a training drill. I was guarding him, and he just let out, and I couldn't go with him. And it was just the most confronting thing when he jumped up and took a mark in front of me, and I was helpless. And it just it shattered my confidence. I've just, I've just thought, what just happened there? I just couldn't keep up with him. The most bizarre feeling. So being able to get to those the level that I was as you know, a 17 year old who you know, was really fit, everything was going great. I just never got back to that initial burst of quickness. Um, even when I put on more size and did all these different exercises and tried different techniques, it just never came back. And it's a, it's a hard feeling to comprehend. It's confronting. Uh, it was incredibly frustrating. It was something that really drove me to, to try and chase and, and get it back. And like I said, the fitness is always there, but the lateral movement, the quickness, the burst of speed, the vertical leap, and all around just the confidence in my knee. I just didn't have that belief that it was gonna it was gonna hold up under pressure, particularly towards the end. After the second, the confidence in the ability of my knee to take any impact, I was always just living in fear to a certain extent that it was gonna tear again. Confidence is everything in athletes. Mm. And you know, sadly, research shows that recurring ACL injury occurs in almost a third of all male athletes with a previous ACL tear, and that number increases to 50% in males who are under 25, and sadly, both of you have had to prematurely give up on your sporting careers. When did you realise you needed to stop doing something you love, and how did you manage it emotionally? It's a bloody good question. Mm. So that when you know that going to training and potentially doing your knee again and not having that confidence to be able to get through a training session, which would impact you taking a sick day from work, which would impact you going through surgery for another 12 months, that was enough for me to say my career comes first. And there was a time when I think my daughter might have been about six months and the only thing I wanted to do was to get up and down off the floor with her. So she might have been sitting up and, and you know really engaging at six to eight months. And I dreaded getting down at that level, knowing that I could lose balance. I didn't have the structure to be able to support myself or it just hurt. So at that time, I knew that cricket was secondary. Absolutely. You know, for for 18 to 20 years, it was my primary activity. It was the one thing that I hang my hat on. I was a cricketer. So the, the purpose and your sense of identity in the sport that you do, and it's all of a sudden it's ripped away, that was really confronting. Absolutely was. And being a 30-year-old male, you hide your feelings and you hide your emotions, but it's bloody tough. So to go back to school and and the kids at my school knew my cricket and I was playing cricket um, at a a decent level, and all of a sudden you're saying that I'm no longer playing because, you know, family comes first, it's quite a bitter pill to swallow. The, The big thing that I would probably suggest to those going through similar things was by the second, when even my surgeon was unsure about the mechanics of why the first two had happened... I was at a bit of a loss. I didn't have any motivations to try to get back because what if it happened again? I actually seek some help and went and spoke to a, a sports psychologist that came highly recommended just for his dealings with local cricketers and local footballers like me. It wasn't anyone who was working with an AFL club. It wasn't anyone who had didn't have come with all the bells and whistles, but he was just speaking to me at my level and was able to identify my main concerns. And it was all around 
the nervousness of coming back and doing something that I hinged my entire existence on was being a cricketer. And once we were able to work out that it wasn't. Me being a teacher, me being a dad, me being a husband was the three things that I could identify as and cricket was just something I loved to do. It took the pressure off. It made me get to the gym a little bit more because I wasn't working my way back to play for Australia. I was, I was making my way back to, to play cricket and play with my mates and um, and enjoy cricket again. Scotty, you're a bit younger when you had probably had to come to this realisation that yeah. you can't play foot anymore. You know, as a young man, what was that like? The, the thought that I... You know, like I said before, my whole sense of self-worth was always, I'm a footballer, I'm a gun, I'm awesome, I'm going to play AFL, it's just going to happen. You know, I'm putting all this work in, it's just going to happen. I'm so committed, there's no way it's not going to get there. So when I kept on having all these injuries, you couldn't keep playing, you get that feeling of frustration. And by the time I got to uni, probably first year and second year, you know, when I'm, once I've had uh, two ACLs, you, you, you pretty much come to the realisation it's not going to happen. You're injured. You're doing rehab. You can't do what you want. You try and fill that void. And it wasn't until a few years later I realised that it was either through through lifting weights and having putting a lot of passion into my weightlifting, and also video games. As silly as it may sound, video games almost became an outlet because I'm a intense person, I'm incredibly competitive. White line fever, you, like you wouldn't believe. Like I'm sure you know, you're the same. Yeah. You cross that line and it. It's game time. You, know, you got to go. Um, so there was, there had to be a way to get that intensity, that competitiveness out, and it turned to, to video games, whether it was playing FIFA or Call of Duty, whatever it is. And it sounds silly, but that's what it was. Yeah, you know, that was my my drive um, to get that competitive outlet um, and to release that energy. So the initial feeling of not of knowing that I'm not going to be able to play football, not even at the elite level. I'm talking just at you know playing the seconds at Donvale and having that social interaction, knowing that I'm going to train twice a week, see my mates, go out on a Saturday, have a good time, play footy, and it's all going to be good. That was the other confronting thing. It's hard to deal with, and I didn't really appreciate it until a few years down the track. I worked at a shopping centre company as an accountant, was never passionate about the job, but still, it was enough to you know, keep me engaged and you know, pay the bills, whatever. And it wasn't until I got into uh, selling commercial real estate, which is what I'm doing now, where I was able to find an outlet for that intensity, for that competitiveness, and I've become addicted. You know, you'd know full well the hours that I put in, the passion that I inject into each and every day of being a real estate agent. I'm very fortunate. I'm thankful that I found that drive and that goal because if not for that, I could just be floating around. You know, when I was an accountant, I wasn't engaged. I wasn't motivated. I, I'd lost that sense of purpose that being a footballer gave me. And it wasn't until I got into real estate that I had that outlet. I had that sense of this is what I am now. And it was almost something to wrap my identity around. Uh, so I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that I found a, a passion, a drive that I can now utilize in my day-to-day life. The, the team that I work within, it's about as close to a sporting environment as you can get. You know, we talk all the time. We're always seeing each other. Um, we live in each other's hip pockets just like you would at a club. So it's more about just being thankful that I have found a passion in life and luckily that is my career now. Um, but yeah, I didn't appreciate it at the time being you know, 18 to 24 and you know, the, the, the emotions that come with losing your identity, having something taken away from you. It's not just as simple as, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just give up and play. I just won't play anymore or, you know, I'll, I'll just find another sport. It wasn't that simple, unfortunately. 
Potentially we're in a good position, the fact that we aren't elite athletes, that we had other things within our life that we were able to be distracted by. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking of that 30, 29, 30, 31 period for me with the three in a row. It was my job, it was my family. And so the, the, the knee injury and return to community cricket wasn't a priority. If I was an elite athlete and my sole challenge was to return as that potential athlete, that might be a lonely road. A very different proposition. I think so. And, and so the one thing for me was to turn my attention to coaching. And, and after the second, I went to the coach at Paran and said I really wanted to continue. I was doing a lot of junior coaching, but I wanted to transition to senior coaching and I felt that that was a good opportunity to do that, and which, which is where I ended up meeting you, Liam, was at Richmond when I came across as a, uh, an assistant coach looking to play, but at the same time really invest into the coaching. And I felt at the time that that was a really good step for me to really invest into other people, took the attention away from myself. So even when I did that third on my right knee when I was at Richmond, it was hurt and it was really hard, but I had to get over it quickly because the following week I was at training and working with you off your, your run-up and, and trying to get the other <laughs> bowlers to be you know, better for themselves. So that was a really good distraction at the time. And now it's been seven years on and I'm, I'm still coaching and I think it does give me a greater sense of empathy for injured players. And especially that loneliness of the first six to eight weeks of an injury, if they are removed, whether it's a stress fracture, whether it's an ACL. And, and so that coaching element, I mean, like Scott, it's competitive. I'm in the team. It's, it's constant tactical, technical conversations. And, and that's a really good driver for me. I think professional athletes and their coaches love to bang on about resilience to the point where it's become an overused buzzword, which very few people genuinely understand. But you two know exactly what it means to be resilient. You've both repeatedly shown an ability to recover from and adjust easily to misfortune or change. And I'd love to know, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd give to athletes with a serious sporting injury? It's one foot in front of the other, especially with rehab of an ACL that as soon as you stop, you've taken a step backwards. So as hard as it is and as hard as I hated those million-dollar half squats, quarter squats, I did them knowing that there was a step towards the end goal. So knowing what the end goal is is, is half the battle, but then just making sure that it's day by day, you're, account, you're held accountable by those around you and those who love you, and actually being really positive towards yourself. And, and the whole resilience being able to overcome something and for, for Scott and I, when you remove that one thing in our life, that was quite traumatic to us. The, yeah, we had to find purpose in other things and, and to do that, we had to take a step forward. We had to continue to find that purpose and had to seek it out in other avenues, whether it is our profession or occupation or outside interest. We had to find it. It wasn't going to come looking for us. So yeah, there were dark days, there were wallowing days, there were some lonely periods for both of us, I'm sure. Mm. The, the, the fact that we have come out the other side suggests that maybe it is from our parents and maybe it is from earlier you know, issues that we're able to overcome, but we're able to do it. And I think it was for the fact that we had day by day, step by step, moment by moment, we overcame it, knowing that there was a longer, greater goal in place. I used to think about a saying, and I don't know where it came from, but I used to say, nothing's cheap. So it's not just going to happen. You need to earn it and you need to just do the work. I used to think that constantly, you know, every day, I just think nothing's going to come cheap. You've got to pay the price. You've got to do the work and mm. there's no other way. 
there's no alternative. It's not just going to fix itself. And there was just that sense of drive where there was no other option. Um, not, and I had the conversation plenty of times. You know, you tell someone oh, I've done my ACL, and they'd always say, "Oh, as if, as if you're still playing." And I was always surprised by that comment when someone questioned why I'd come back. I thought they were the weird one. Why, why, why wouldn't I come back? I want to. I want to play AFL. I want to. I want to get drafted. I want to. I want to play football again. There's no alternative. It's it's do or die. Like th- that's how insane I was in terms of that, that mantra. And you know, as I've as I've gotten older, and I, c- I can understand why someone would say that. Because if you're not all in, if you're not totally committed, if your whole sense of self worth isn't wrapped up in this thing, sure, just don't worry about it. Don't play. But it wasn't an option. There was no alternative other than do the work, get the surgery, do the rehab, get back and play and be the best you can. And I think for me, working with students now with a number of different concerns, traumas, worries, anxieties and stresses is the fact that you've got to accept all emotions. And so everyone who is going through this ACL rehab will have frustrations, the woe is me, why is it happening to me moments. And I blamed everyone during all of the five rehabs that I had. It was everyone else's fault but mine. And that's okay. And I've come to to realise that you know, the world's not against me. It's not my mate hit me with a cricket bat. It was the fact that for some reason, and I'm not religious at all, but for some reason they were happening to me. It certainly made me a more understanding coach and probably more an understanding father. Once you realise you can accept emotions and it's okay to feel anger and sadness, you work your way through it. And the most important thing I found was to actually have someone you can chat to and to work through that and understand that, they're going to be there the whole time. So to accept your fails and accept your emotions, and that is one thing to be um, really accepting of. Guys, thanks so much. It's really interesting to hear what you've had to say. It sounds like if it wasn't for the ACLs, you've both got the beings of an elite competitive athlete that would have succeeded otherwise and in your professional lives and just lives in general, you're both doing really well. And thank you so much for the time that you've spent today talking about ACL tears. Thanks for letting us share our story. There's certainly every, almost every person I speak to, I tell them how good I was, how close I was, and how <laughs> I would have been right up there if I didn't tear that ACL. Don't you worry about that. Thank you for listening to the Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.